This is the future, baby. Like plants wearing clothes, dogs wearing clothes, trees wearing clothes, everything, gas use, fish people wearing clothes. Like that's to me so interesting. That's what I do with my art. It's like fantastic fashion. Fantastical fashion is like what I always dying to do. I'm like waiting for the big client score where they're just like, we have a, a ton of alien avatars. What does that fashion look like? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, let's find out. Do something weird. Hey, make it weird. You're listening to Kent Selvis, a podcast about creativity, creatives, and their process with your hosts, Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Oh man, I am so excited about today's episode. We have another great guest this time, and I, uh, I'm just, I'm going to get right into it. I'm going to introduce Emily Switzer. She has worn many hats as a creative. Uh, she started out as a producer in VFX, and uh, now is uh, using the titles of 3D artist and designer. But she's worked in long format, short format, and in this fascinating new world, at least to me, because I had no idea it existed, 3D fashion illustration. Emily, why don't you say hi and expand on what I just said? <laughs> hi, Stevan. It's so lovely to be here or digitally be here, virtually be here. And uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to uh, get a chance to just blab about me. Oh, my two, it's like my least favorite and most favorite thing. I hate networking. I hate selling myself. Always feels disingenuine. But at the same time, if somebody asks me my opinion, I'm like, oh, let me tell you, I got opinions. I got all types of opinions, <laughs> let me tell you. So it's a real, real joy. I'll try to avoid too much self-deprecation but it's in my nature oh no we we this this podcast (laughs) i I think we mentioned this when we talked last time but that's right yeah uh, tangents (laughs) tangents are big and self-deprecation also happens quite often so we talked about how we don't trust artists that don't self-deprecate enough and that your quality as an artist can probably be charted based on how much self uh you can take a compliment if you're too good at it i immediately become suspicious I, i thought about that as well and and there was one thing that I, I want to add is the artist who has the yeah I'm a pretty big deal <laughs> attitude like right off the bat which to me is like I believe the inverse of that a- statement. absolutely yeah exactly <laughs> I immediate, it immediately puts me on guard that oh no 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 one who's really good ever says that so yeah. you must be you must be middling you must be making up for it and same with celebrities if you mm-hmm. ever listen to people who like deal with celebrities they're like oh the hugest big a-list celebrities are nice normal people because they don't have to be like don't you know who i am everyone really does know who know who that is yeah it's the middle sort of famous people that are the biggest divas because they're like don't you know who i am and people are like actually no and then that really sets them <laughs> off yeah so mm. it's kind of like, yeah it's kind of like that i think with artists it's like i'm kind of a big deal i'm like immediately you might as well have just said i i, I sting yeah. you might as well yeah. just wore a little sign that's like i kind of i'm kind of mediocre but versus yeah, yeah like people yeah. or winkleman who says stuff like i'm a pile of shit and i'm like <laughs> oh this must be pretty good the more self-deprecating you are the better or the more talented you are i would say yeah there's Probably. a chart for that yeah, yeah. we got to chart that out <laughs> But listen, you um, you started your career as a producer in VFX, right? That's right. So I started out in with a film degree, and I actually oh. started in the art department. Um, and it was okay. I wasn't really a big fan of set life. 
and mm. uh art department's just like a big old arts and crafts sort of vibe it's very fun i love making things but i wasn't really into set life and then slowly i started migrating into post-production and i sort of found this job in the vfx as a just like honestly starting at the bottom of the totem pole as a secretary for this studio called intelligent creatures who at the time had a contract for orphan black and ah, that was right. sort of like their one of their flagship projects and uh Slowly but surely, I kind of integrated myself into the system to move up to uh, coordinator. And I learned so much at that job. There were some tremendous people and excellent talent at that studio. Um, they're now, I believe, called Mars. But at the time, an intelligent creatures was what they were being called. And I learned a lot of the skills that I apply today in my practice as a coordinator sitting in a dark room watching dailies, staring at a big screen, trying to assess like, did we VFX good enough to pet send the <laughs> shot to client? Is this good, is this good, did we, is the integration correct? Is every pixel, you know, just like staring into for hours and hours, that's your job, you know, right. sit there with the soup and take the notes and communicate, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, I had a, I had my fill of that and I sort of moved on up to producing. And that's what I sort of migrated into uh, shorter format stuff. So it was a producing for uh, commercials and it was okay. It's a, it's, a, it's a different beast working in short format. You're working with a lot of clients and agencies and projects obviously don't take months and months to deliver. We're talking about, you know, right. usually month long uh, project pipelines and yeah, three to four so weeks, you, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you do a lot of more, there's a more volume and variation in what you're doing in commercial world versus a long format project, which, you know, you take your time and you're more thoughtful. Um, and it was all cool. It was good, but it always seemed like it was dancing around the thing I just want to do, which is earn my living doing the arts, whatever that is, though. It was really like hard for me to justify breaking out and going into being a production artist because I didn't actually know what I wanted to do. So it didn't feel right for me to turn down this good job that I had worked hard at and people liked me and I was good at it and it paid well living in a city that's very important. Everybody's got to eat and pay mm -hmm. the bills. So it's, I was sort of mulling it over for a long time. And the next logical step up from a producer is of course, executive producer. And I thought, well, is that what I want to be an, exec an executive producer? It's more producing and less creative, mm -hmm. even less creative stuff, in my opinion. So, you know, at, the, at a certain point, you kind of hit a threshold and I, I was kind of, you know, weighing my options and I was thinking this might be a good time mm -hmm. to stop what you're doing and really ask yourself, are you happy? What do you want to do? What mm -hmm. makes you happy? And it's like, well, if you don't know, then go find out because you're, you know, I was 30. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have kids. That's a big deal. I don't have to like those, those considerations can really make up, make you think about whether I should change careers, but to right. not have those dependents meant that like, I kind of have some freedom here, some latitude to figure it all out. So I quit my job at Tendril, which was the studio I was working at after IC. And uh, they're also wonderful people and the talent at Tentral Studios is tremendous and once again I'm so thankful to have gone there even as a producer in the producer role never mind a creative role because you'll just learn so much I learned a whole different skill set 
of dealing with commercial clients, which is, again, something I draw on all the time because that's my bread and butter now, not long format, but rather commercial work right. as an independent, as a freelancer. That's more likely what I get handed now. And uh, it's it, it was really a great learning lesson. But eventually, yeah, my, my one of my producer friends who knew I was quitting was like, okay, just sort of like pie in the sky. What would you do if you could do anything you wanted right now? And like, just, just say it. And like, just blurt it out. And I was like, uh, uh, fashion illustration. <laughs> and it shocked me. I was like, where did that come from? Because I had always been drawing. I always did illustration on the side, digital illustration. And um, fashion illustration is like an interesting sort of subsection of illustration where the focus is obviously on the garment, on the mood, and like trying to capturing the essence of this, of a outfit or design. And um, it's, yeah, less, it's more, Sometimes it can be super realistic, like mm-hmm. hyper realism, but a lot of the time, I think the best, most successful fashion illustrations are representative, are just like, yes, here's the essence of the garment. Here's the mood that this garment was trying to communicate. And I had a lot of fun doing illustrations, digital and as well as traditional. And so this year where I was sort of like rediscovering myself, also decompressing, there's a lot of stress with producing and I right. was, very stressed out and I needed to like take a step back and recalibrate that was sort of a a subtle push also to be like is it it's not making you happy and you're mega stressed like do you want to go into the next level of that which I can only imagine is probably more stress and more unhappiness so uh reassessing my career choices and then I found fashion illustration made me really happy and that's when I started to discover, and I, uh, I having been in proximity of uh, all these wonderful VFX artists who work in 3D all the time, it almost felt like natural. I was going to slowly start to progress towards 3D as well. And, and also doing my own research, I started to find all these wonderful softwares where you can recreate garments and clothing and cloth in 3D. Um, Marvelous Designer and Clothe 3D are like the leading softwares for this work of cloth simulation. Though Houdini also has vellum simulation and you can Mm -hmm. do cloth simulation in Maya. Most major, like all the major 3D softwares have some form of cloth simulation in the engine. But Marvelous and Clothe are sort of like, that's what they're for. And uh, I had even, I'd I'd heard of Marvelous as well, even just in some of the work that I've done in passing. Like, Like I remember the artist talking about it when it first came out. Yeah, it's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful software. Marvelous is really useful for uh, game design and for mm-hmm. uh, character artists because before trying to like model clothing, it can be tricky. It can be tricky. Here, you don't have to simulate cloth or think about it. It's like build the outfit onto your character and Bob's your uncle. Now, the difference between like clone and Marvelous is like you have to think of it almost like Marvelous was like for the 3D community and clone is for the fashion community. So right. I didn't know the difference at the time. They, they, there's so much overlap in the tools. They're pra- um, I, I want to say they're almost the same software. And if you have the skills in Clo, you have, it's the same stuff and Marvelous. Like you can almost use it interchangeably. The main difference, of course, is that Marvelous is, again, for the 3D community. So it has more tools and like geared towards that and exporting and dealing with animation and mesh and like retopology and those important things that you need in the production pipeline for 3D assets versus Clo, which is has tons of tools that I never touch because it's about physically turning your 3D garment into to, a real world right. of course. production prototype sample. So it's really interesting having never 
having en entered 3D fashion from the realm of VFX, which is sort of the opposite side of where people enter it. Usually they're coming from it from a fashion background. Yeah, that's, I, I think it's, I, I was gonna ask you about that sort of like how moving into like a completely different industry and, and, and what those challenges were, but you know, the way you describe it, um, I can see that that there's there's got to be some overlap in in the tools that you're using and in some of the concepts maybe even. Oh yeah, all the time in between VFX. Oh, and 3D or sorry, between 3D and fashion. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I had no again no training in fashion, no education in fashion. Fashion is just something I personally like to participate in. Right. Um, a fashionable person. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I hope everyone heard my air quotes. Everyone should. <laughs> But I'm very, it's true, I'm very vain. I like, I like style. I like, yeah. I like styling myself. I like good style on people. I follow, I'm up to date on fashion is what you could say. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, the overlap is that like having render, having the ability to like see good, like know what makes a, a successful VFX shot, excellent lighting, excellent compos compositing, you know, doing the, the right work on the texture to make it look real and, and the light is interacting with it correctly and, and, and in a tangible and, ex and you know pretty looking way to, for lack of a better word. Um, that, that really helps elevate the quality of my 3D fashion illustrations because a lot of these kids who are coming from the fashion world are using Clo not in a 3D illustrative way to make pretty renders, they're using right. it in a very practical way to create for what you would call rapid prototyping. And mm -hmm. that's why Clo is such a revolutionary tool right now in fashion is because the process before, let's say you have your designer, you're in, let's say you're an independent designer and you want to get a dress made for your store on bulk. Well, the normal process of that is that you go to a pattern cutter, you describe your designs, the pattern cutter would come up with the base pattern and you'd have to send that out and get samples made. Mm -hmm. And you could do round and round and round of samples seeing, okay, how's the drape? How's the fit? Does it fit like this? Does it look like that? It's a lot of waste. It's very mm -hmm. wasteful. Mm -hmm. Here is an opportunity where you can, in one shot and one software, create the pattern and see immediately, very, very accurately, what that looks like um, on the 3D model, on a, mm -hmm. in 3D modeling. And you can assess the drape, you can assess the stretch, the warp, the weft. What does this look like in denim versus what does it look like in silk? There's all these presets in Clo and Marvelous for different um, physics, for different fabrics that mm -hmm. they've studied. Um, and so that affects obviously the look of a garment. And so they're using it for that. And there's tons of tools in Clo, like laying it out on the uh, fabric roll and optimizing the layout so that you can, which is so much like UV unwrapping. It's creepy. Like that's a huge overlap right there. That UV unwrapping Between, yeah. is, yeah, the same as what you're trying to do, trying to fit it in the Udom box so that it's correct and like optimized is what they do. And they're taking their pattern pieces and they're optimizing it so that right. the least amount of fabric is wasted that you're right. using every inch, every of that bolt of fabric. And these are the measurements so that, yeah, again, you save money. It's just money mm -hmm. saving mm -hmm. is versus and, and waste also because fashion is, we were talking about this earlier, one of the biggest, it is the second biggest pollution pollutant yeah, industry. That I found Behind that big incredible. Oil. Yeah, yeah, and we, and we said big oil—the the industry that is literally about pollution. Yeah, the <laughs> product is, is pollution. pollution. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Versus that's crazy. That 
fabric it's the textile industry i, I never i never would have yeah incredibly wasteful incredible the chemicals and everything is so bad for the environment like I, I i knew those those aspects existed in in um textiles but i just never imagined that it would have been the second highest uh, in, in in the world that that's that's astounding to it's, me yeah it's a staggering and, and it's Two, it's I think it's two big things now I'm not a fashion scholar so I should mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. maybe I don't want to talk out of my butt but it, <laughs> I as the way I understand it is like it's the textile manufacturing but also the sheer volume of clothing that gets thrown out right that that's accounting for a huge volume of the waste and that's a cultural problem mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. because we're addicted to low cheap prices fast fashion trends high turnover rates etc 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 so i won't get into all that all the bad stuff about the fashion industry but the interesting thing about 3d and rapid prototyping is that it is helping to i won't say it's like the end-all be-all solution for ultimate sustainability but Mm -hmm. i think it's an important part of uh, creating a sustainable pipeline for fashion production so it's very useful for fashion students and that's what they're using this tool for versus me as like a vfx or 3d artist i'm using it to make pretty pictures. I'm really interested in making real pretty pictures. And uh, Chloe and Marvelous allows me to sort of um, create hyper-realistic renderings of fabric. And that's what I use for my 3D fashion illustrations, which is a uh, niche, very niche uh, kind of industry right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the thing I, I had, I was I saw articles just from this year, like from last month and from, from, you know, mid 2020 talking about how the the fashion industry is getting caught up on 3d design and 3d fashion illustration. So it really does feel like something that is, is just now starting to, to come into its own. And like when you talked about how the industry used to survive where they'd have to get something cut and and built before they could actually see or test it and that this rapid prototyping which is something that has existed in in engineering and manufacturing and even in um vfx for ages um i think about some of the earliest cg in film uh specifically thinking about um disney's tron and how they would mathematically render stuff out and not know what it would look like until they got a film reel back from development so so no cg software literally just numbers on a screen and going i think this will look like a bunch of things yeah wonder what the computer will translate this as will it become art who knows that kind of reminds me of interstellar where they um remember it's for the black hole effect Mm -hmm. they were like we have no they were surprised themselves at how the light was behaving based on the calculations that the scientists had given them being like this is how light would behave if you around a black hole and they were like oh crap look at that it's doing this and the scientific community was like oh my god we didn't even think of that you're right yeah this is how light would be it's like they saw it on paper and math yep. but they had never visualized it and then when they saw it they were like oh, oh of course so cool yeah, yeah of course yeah <laughs> really fun yeah Yeah, and you're talking about that the sort of the spherical yeah uh, look of it because of course a a hole in 3d space is is a sphere right so right like bending around the hole because they were like yeah of course it can't go in it's the black it's a black gravity is warping the light it's so fun when you can be surprised by vfx or the spontaneity Mm -hmm. of working in 3d when something just clicks 
and you're like, oh, that looks so good. I live mm-hmm. for that moment. That is the like happy pure... accidents. Yeah, yeah. That's, I live on the corner of happy and accident. That's where my <laughs> condo is. I love it. It's right beside the corner of plausible and deniability. My second <laughs> home lives there. That's where I live. Um, it's so much fun when you're exploring 3D realms. And like uh, for that first year, I definitely <laughs> I was I, very privileged in that I had enough funds set mm-hmm. aside mm-hmm. to sustain myself uh, for almost a whole year not working I recognize that that is not the reality for a lot of people that they don't have um savings to do that right right. and that's a huge hurdle uh and a lot of time what you hear is the story kind of different from mine is that oh yeah I was working two jobs I had my day job and then my night job that was the passion and then I had I transitioned and it was really scary and there was probably a couple lean lean months maybe even years before Mm -hmm. traction like I recognize I'm, I was lucky, not all luck, but smart that I had and I had, was able to set aside funds from when I was working consistently right. to basically have a year to explore myself, you know, find myself. I'm so reluctant to even to even apply that nomenclature because I'm such an old curmudgeon and work is so tied to my identity. I yes, love working. I know what you mean. So when I didn't have a job, I felt listless. Mm-hmm. I felt like a bum. I felt like, oh, I'm a, I'm a drag on society. My whole identity was tied up with, mm-hmm. I work for a living. Here, I contribute. I'm a functioning member. So I'm an adult. And then when that took took it away, I was, I felt very, uh, I was like, what am I doing with my life? I'm playing around on the freaking computer. Like my parents asked me what I do, and I want to, just not say anything because I, the answer is. Oh, nothing right now. I'm a bum. I'm an artist. It's finding myself. It doesn't sound as nice as saying, oh, oh, me, I'm a producer. So, so you're talking, you're talking about this year where you were jumping from, from VFX to fashion Um, and you had to, uh, you took the year to sort of retrain yourself. Is that? Yeah. Retrain myself as well as figure out what you want to do. Because if you recall, I said, I didn't even know what I wanted to do. I just, I said, blurted out fashion illustration. I was like, what does that mean for me? So I had to find out. So not only was it a year of like, pick, pick your art, pick your poison sister. What do you want to become? But also how do you do it? What do I do now? Like 3D, like fashion illustration just sort of bled into 3D and suddenly I was downloading 3D software and I was spending all day learning and learning it. And a lot of people were very supportive in my life. Again, another bonus that I know isn't available to everyone, but people would, you know, comp- my friends who saw my work would compliment me and be like, wow, you see, you, le- you seem to be going so fast and learning so much. And I'm like, I better, I have nothing <laughs> to do all day, but sit at my damn computer and learn this stuff. Yeah, I better be going fast. Like I don't have time. I don't have years. I have to catch up. That's, that was my mentality. Like I, not that, oh, I've been wasting my life producing and courting, but like that, that stuff wasn't what I isn't the skill set now I would need to learn to become a freelancer so it was I was trying to move very very fast in as little time as possible to catch up but and now you realize when you do have a little bit of traction under you that you're like oh you'll never catch up sweetie don't worry about it your whole (laughs) life is a learning curve this is just how it's going to be for the rest of your life so how did you how did you keep yourself motivated in that year um, I, it was that ha- the happy accidents we were actually just talking about whenever something kind of clicked for me and it seemed like a, a Pokemon kind of leveling up. That's what it felt <laughs> like. I was unlocking skills. I was like evolving into my next form and I'd be like, 
yes, I got this new pipeline down for how I do textures and clo. And yes, I figured out how to export into Cinema 4D. And ah, oh, yes, I've managed to like do this animation where I did this lighting thing that I really love in, in Octane or something. And it, it just like this, my own, <laughs> so vain, my own pleasure at my, at my own discoveries made it worth my while so at a certain point. You know, I've been an art closeted artist for so long my whole life I'd been illustrating but of course never making money off of it just doing it for my own fun I had a deviant art account when I was a kid you know uh, like yeah. oh yeah you know what I'm talking <laughs> about putting up those digital illustrations all it is is screaming into the void I'm just I was so used to screaming into the void and not ha- hearing anything back that it didn't really bother me at first that no one was paying attention to me I was like I'm doing this for Emily I quit my job so I could be happy so I might as well go hog wild and try to be happy and then luckily my boyfriend was very supportive and he's a freelancer too and he often told me it's like just keep going don't worry about it no like you will be noticed like you know it's always nice hearing an outside voice being like this is good what you're doing it's good it's good you can keep keep doing it just keep keep doing it keep doing it keep getting better keep leveling up so Mm -hmm. I was super, he was very supportive. And it was through these sort of like, like I said, like this mad laboratory in my mind of experimenting and like eventually that um, somebody hired me to do what I had been trying to train myself to do. And that was like pure validation. And as soon as I had that first gig, I was hooked. I was like, that's it, that's it. I don't have to produce anymore. I got it, I got it, figured it out. I mean, I'm still taking on whatever job I can. Let's be honest, we're all paying the bills here. That is the life of the freelancer, right? Yeah, exactly. But now it's consistent and it feels good Mm -hmm. and it feels like, oh, for the first time I've come to a place in my practice where I am now able to support myself with freelance work, uh, doing 3D art. Right, instead of just being the producer. Right. proximity of creativity that's yeah. it's what yeah it was like always felt like I was close to the creatives but never just believing in myself enough to just go ahead and do the creative work it's like I knew what made it good I had all the theories right but I didn't have mm-hmm. the skills to do it. I didn't know how to push the buttons and so finally I was just like just stop just go learn how to push the buttons you want to and so okay but all that learning that was done, that was self-directed, that was yeah. oh yeah, just that was just finding videos, tutorials, yeah. and absolutely nice. all on the internet, all YouTube, the University of YouTube, baby. Yes, if they if they have a degree program, please let me know. I'd love a piece of paper that says. Yeah. But <laughs> here, so here's here's a question: How how yeah. important is that piece of paper? You know, like think about in your lines of work. So in VFX, in being right. a producer, being an artist than being a, a, a digital fashion illustrator. You, you know, you, you don't have a, a, a piece of paper, a diploma. Is, is that even important? Um, in my personal opinion and in my experience, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. I've, uh, as the value of having an edu- a secondary education in film was not only let it lay the groundwork for um, the theories that I know today, as like obviously educational purposes, but it was also for the connections. That's what film school is. It's the connect. I'm going into an industry and I now have like 80 allies that know my name and know my work and they're going into the same industry with me and we can call upon each other. So that Mm -hmm. was the real value of going to film school. It wasn't the piece of paper. Anyone can step into film 
the film industry and just go. The problem is if you don't know anyone, you're not going to get called up. So right. it's really, it's really word of mouth and contacts that give it the value. And it also gives you an opportunity to get all your crappy ideas out of the way, flush them out. You, you know, in university, it's like very rare that you encounter some, you know, a student that has world winning ideas, right? Yeah. And I was absolutely not one of them. I had garbage, trash, shitty ideas, same as every <laughs> student, just mediocre, you know, like, come on. So good to get those out of the way. At yeah, I, when I look back at, at, at university or, um, or high school, even some of the, some of the art projects that I worked on, oh, I'm yeah. just, I, I blush. I'm so embarrassed. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, oh, they're so everyone, horrible. Oh, I know. You, you take, yeah, take heart that everyone, everyone, yeah, everyone. If you go through your notebook sketchbook, I, I want to make a bet. Here's some sketchbook bingo for you. I bet we both had. I bet we both had an illustrative a, a figure with a bat wing and an angel wing. Did you draw that? I bet I, yeah, I did. I bet you. Yep. Did. Grade seven. <laughs> I'm just cringing Ooh, thinking about I'm it. I'm sure you I'm sure you drew some heart 3D hearts for with some maybe some daggers in it. Let's see other lame things I drew. I can't really think. Anyway, yeah, there's a lot of bad ideas that you yeah. just want to you have to just get out of the way, flush it out of your system, and then and then they're gone. And then right. you know how cheesy they are when you yeah. look back and you're like, okay, oh, that thing's more cringy than an adult artist drawing things that like they think is cool and it's like this is stuff I like drew in high school I've, I've met someone like that who was like had so much raw talent was actually maybe a prodigy when it came to his technical abilities to illustrate I was always in awe but the content of his illustrations were incredibly juvenile mm. and kind of just like really lame concepts and I asked him about it and he just like revealed that he didn't have no education. He just like refused to educate himself about art, mm. art history, art theory. He saw no value in it, no value at all. And looking at any of his contemporaries, past, present, had no value to him. And so all of his That's ideas really seemed really lame and rehashed and like had obviously been done before by even more, by better artists, mm -hmm, more mm -hmm. not just prestigious, but better artists to put it bluntly. And he didn't really get it that you know people weren't blown away by his work like, well it oh. seems like that's that's the aspect that isn't taught anywhere right like you know you talked about um uh using the, you know the the school of of youtube or university of youtube to learn specific software right to do the things that you do or uh, going to film school where there's a lot of of, of production knowledge mm -hmm. that 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 you get um, you know, bombarded with in the, in the years that you're there. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, even in my um, education, I don't think there was ever really anyone who, who talked specifically about, like there was maybe design, character design. I went to school for animation. So there was a, a, a sort of a discussion about the theory of character design, what makes a, a hero, what makes a villain, you know, how right. do you make a, a character look a certain way? But it was, a lot of it was still technical. Mm -hmm. um, where do you think that people, you know, where is that knowledge coming from that makes one artist, um, you know, have artwork that is meaningful and isn't juvenile, and then the other one, like you said, that there was a lack of education there, but, but I get, I, I think I, I know where you're going. Yeah. With that. <laughs> dot 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 <laughs> at the end of that sentence. Um, I, it's interesting. Education, the education system, does not work for everyone. It worked well for me 
because I'm the daughter of uh, European immigrants who fled Second World War, worn torn Europe. And when they came here, my grandparents had a heavy emphasis on education. They were like, we did not uproot our lives and leave Europe so that you could come here and flunk out of high school or university. They had huge like expectations on my parents about education. And then that got passed down to me. Mm -hmm. You can do anything you want, but you have to go to school. So the edu- I was like, I feel like I was primed to work within the education system. And by contrast, I have met incredibly intelligent people who on paper look like dum-dums because the education system does not work for them. But that is not true at all. It's like they just don't perform well at tests or the type of structured, again, Western education system that we have isn't right for their type of intelligence. That does not uh, devalue or sort of eliminate their inherent intelligence. Like I said, mm-hmm. the, they are like savant geniuses. They don't need school, but it's hard, but they know, they understand that like school is needed to sort of open doors and they, they try to work within the system, but it fails them. And so it doesn't work for everyone. Um, but I think it, even if it doesn't work for you, do yourself and your art practice a favor and just go buy the books that you are interested in, go look up the topics you are interested learn the history of mm-hmm. that field, be it character design, graphic design, 3D design. And guess what, honey? They all blend together. But design theories and graphic design will absolutely help you make a better character, will help you make a better composed frame in the VFX, in the commercial world. If, you know, you're a logo artist and you're learning graphic design and then suddenly, let's say you switch to 3D production artists, suddenly you're making 3D renders of architecture or something. It's like those law, those like theories that you that you learned in graphic and logo design will absolutely help you make a stronger, better looking, Mm -hmm. prettier looking render, uh, whatever the product is or the thing is that you're rendering in 3D, because you understand things like negative space and composition, the rules of composition. These aren't like specific to any one area of the arts. These are general rules that like as humans, we find these things visually pleasing Mm -hmm. to the eye because of our program or brain programming or our cultural mores or what we've had in the you know like all these myriad of reasons so no education is wasted go and look it up yourself be a student of the youtube youtube university do yourself a favor don't be like this chump i knew who had all the technical skills blessed with these amazing skills and i could tell you how mediocre his artwork was Mm -hmm. i was so i was just so bored with everything he showed me and i'm like Oh, wow. Yeah, you rendered this girl in beautiful detail and she's sucking on a Glock. Wow. So vividly, (laughs) so interesting. So I've never seen that before. Wow. Shocking. You know, it's like, (laughs) next. I just wasn't interested. It's like the, the, and he was shocked. I think it kind of threw him off a little bit because he was used to being applauded for his technical difficulty, you know, Mm -hmm. how it Mm -hmm. really does look like the thing it should look like. But I was like, I, I have a camera. I can take a photograph yeah. if I wanted something to look hyper real. I'm really more interested in representative illustration. Mm-hmm. And even when he showed me his more representative illustration stuff, again, the content was so empty that it felt like, do yourself a favor, dude, and just go buy like mm-hmm. a, a couple of books on famous pop artists. And you'll see like the 
it, it, his was the equivalent of the angel, the person with the one angel wing and the bat wing. And he's like, haven't, isn't this amazing? I'm like, yeah, he's like, haven't you ever seen this before? I was like, of course I have. Every, everybody's seen this type of yep. stuff before, you know, like, that's all I'm saying is like, do yourself a favor and go research whatever that is you're interested in. So you don't commit the artistic faux pas of thinking you're the first one to have ever thought of this idea. Um, mm -hmm. because chances are somebody did it, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Do it your interpretation mm -hmm. of whatever the idea is, but uh, don't rehash what someone famously did and then be shocked when nobody's impressed because it's, yeah, so-and-so did it better and did it like that and it's hitting all the same notes that you are. So sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm thinking back to something you said earlier about um, the the type of illustration that fashion illustration is where it's it's more about sort of like the overall um feel of the outfit that you're mm -hmm. going for rather than than the specifics and and i was like yeah it, it makes me think about concept art uh you know you know where you're trying to convey an idea of something rather than just the details and in in that regard, at least for me as an illustrator, I can think back to, you know, those those horrible pieces of high school art. And whenever it was, whenever I got bogged down in in the technical too early and got and got upset because I couldn't get the image that was in my brain out on paper, mm -hmm. that's when I didn't like the drawing. But whenever I I said I don't even care about that, I just want to get the feeling of the image I have in my head out, and even if it's not technically sound it's a little bit more abstract then I always felt better about it and I think that there's that's that part that we're talking about is this sort of the concept or the the understanding of the 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 for lack of a better term story that the image is telling yes the core mm. idea and this is something I talk about all the time with all my artist friends so much so that they're tired of me talking about it and they say please stop but guess what you haven't heard it yet so I get to tell you for the first time yay <laughs> uh, yeah it's it's more important that your idea is good technical pr uh, proficiency cannot make up for a bad mm. idea but a good idea makes up for bad technical proficiency. So you see that all the time with character, even in digital fashion design, there are some people that are so good because they're fashion designers, they can make beautiful garments, really like quite technically difficult to build these types of garments in 3D. And I see that and I was like, wow, that must've taken hours to build in 3D why did you render that like why is this a black outfit rendered on a black background like you know I can't see it like it, it's it's almost like they missed the point of the good idea or sorry that maybe mm. that wasn't a good example here I'll try again uh, <laughs> it's it's a tech it's like oh here's a great example I can think of it now uh modeler let's say a 3d modeler you see a lot of this especially on art station these like crazy monsters that are just like wrinkle monsters and they have mm -hmm. lots of like wrinkles and details. And it's like, obviously you have the technical proficiency to model. This is not in question. This is a bad monster because it's a bad idea. This mm -hmm. is like a weird elephant thing. And it doesn't really like, it doesn't speak to me. It doesn't have a good, it's, it's the same with movies. You see that actually all the time in film. Uh, I will watch a film that has very low, let's say production budget, production value, but the idea is so good that mm -hmm. I forgive everything. I don't care if the costumes aren't period correct. I don't care if this VFX shot mm -hmm. is a little whatever. Mm -hmm. 
the I, I buy it because the idea is fabulous. And then the opposite side of the spectrum is something with tons of production value and technical, technically flawless. But of course, the idea at its core is garbage. Let's talk about tenant. That's a good, right? Christopher Nolan, is, uh, hear you. it's like yep. pure, it's pure style, no substance. Or as much as I love Marvel Universe stuff, it, it, the plot is simplistic because the demographic is younger children. They're, they don't want to overcomplicate it with questions. You're not going to get a plot like Sophie's Choice right. in a Marvel film, right? <laughs> no way. It's the differences between auteur filmmaking and industrial filmmaking. And that's kind of like, what we're saying here in that in that you can apply that anywhere where it's about the idea the idea trumps technique worry about the abstract weird theory stuff and getting mm -hmm. the idea down maybe quickly and like looking at it kind of with a blurred eye almost just seeing what if it stands on its own yes yeah. and i think yeah it's uh, like we can talk about the I, the core idea being uh, again that story that you're telling but then also the core core idea like you can technically know how to shoot something and film very well and light a scene very well yes. but there's choices that you're making that have nothing to do with just how to technically light something i've seen yeah. so many um like lighting directors or directors of photography go on set and 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 light something it's oh everything is perfectly lit everything is it looks beautiful but there's no atmosphere because they've just lit it perfectly to show the camera what is there and yeah. it's it's the the core idea of not just don't just light it so that it's technically like a a, a Sound, good yeah. yeah it's it but it 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 doesn't evoke any emotion that's where you yeah. have to start thinking about why am i why am i putting the camera where i'm putting it so in in 3D it would be the example of not just the story of the character you're designing and character design but and or and not just the technical side of it as in like can I make the skin look right but just like the color theory and other things that you're you're choosing to do. Yeah, that's the that's honestly the phrase I live by. Bad idea, technique can't save you. Good idea can save any technique no matter how mm -hmm. simplistic your skills are. And when I was learning I really had to rely on that because my skill set was very junior. I was still developing. So I would have, and you know what you said earlier, I'm sure that's everybody has that struggle where you desperately want to get what's in your head onto the paper, onto the screen. And when you have that dis disjointedness and, and you, it's not what you thought it was going to be, the disappointment is so palpable. It makes you want to give up on the idea altogether. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes when you have a really good idea and you, you're just like, I know I'm limited by my techniques. So I want an idea that I can kind of execute with the technique itself, but let's just try, let's not, you know, something else I learned at, uh, at commercial and commercial world and working at Tendril with again, really senior, excellent talent is that at the beginning of any project, personal or commercial or otherwise concept is uh, don't close the gates. Do not mm. start like, oh, we only have this amount of budget or time, or oh, we don't, we can only, I can only do this, I can only do that. You have to almost forget it. Start with the gate open. Make sure the aperture is all the way open. Let the ideas come and then worry about tailoring the idea. Mm -hmm. How can I achieve it to for this scope, for this budget or technical mm -hmm. skill or, or timeline? then adjust, then tweak. Because if you're already from the outset, before you're even thought of what you want to do, 
trying to limit yourself, the ideas you get are going to be less good. And it's better to start big and then pair, pair away, edit, edit, edit until you have the the core diamond Mm -hmm. of the good idea. And when I was, sorry, I'll wrap this up. I'll wrap this (laughs) antidote up. When I was starting out, I I had to ask myself a lot, a lot, like, okay, like I can only do this. I really know how to do that. But what's the story I want to tell with this shot? What's the story behind this animation? And more often than not, you, you know, my friend would see something I'm working on and be like, that looks so cool. And I'd be like, really? You don't see this mistake or that mistake? Yep. You know, we're, they're looking at the thing overall and mm-hmm. it, it's saved you. It saved me a couple of times. Yeah, that, that rings so true for me because so often in, in, in the line of work that I'm in, uh, I'll start writing narrative for some kind of game project and everyone's looking at it from a, can we t- do this technically? You know, for instance, I'll, I'll write something like, and in the background, the TV is on uh, and there's a news story about something pertinent to the, to the story. And so I'm like, well, we, well, we can't, we can't develop all that video for that, that TV that's just in the background. And I'm like, okay, well, it can just be a still image with mm. some sound and, mm. you know, it gets the idea across that there's a, a newscast, but um, it, there's this like literal thinking of, of what is being described needs to then technically work in the game. I'm like, there's just always an artistic way around all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, we just got to get, uh, as, we have to get the story out to know if the story works and then we'll find that the, you know, the technical changes to make. And, and yes, you do have to compromise on stories sometimes, right? Absolutely. Always. Yeah, exactly. We're not, you know, we don't have infinity dollars or infinity right. resources. And so, yeah, it's, it always comes to, it always gets paired back, but mm-hmm. at the beginning, at the very least, do yourself a favor and keep the gates open and just try to have an open mind mm-hmm. about what you can do. And then think about how you, and if an idea is truly unachievable in any iteration of it, or, you know, even a smaller iteration of, it, okay, well then you set it aside, you put it in your back pocket, but mm-hmm. chances are you'll come up with a big idea. You'll look at it and be like, okay, I can't achieve it. So uh, exactly as I see in my mind, what's this what is the way to get to this that's a little less glamorous you know so exactly mm-hmm. the example you gave was perfect okay well we don't have to film a whole news segment you're right that's ridiculous but what if we just put a still frame back there and had like ticker tape going about the up the audio mm-hmm. that's look at that i achieved 90 percent of the idea right there right without there, yeah. having to yeah spend a ton of money do you do you feel that your um experience in as a producer you know, comes into play and how as an artist and helps you in that regard? Oh, all the time. I'm so grateful for the career I had at the beginning because it gave me all the skill sets I would have had to learn along the way anyway as a freelance artist. But now I had that at the gets, you know, the word go. So at the very beginning, um, I like to say I was a junior artist, I but I was, I did not have a junior attitude. I was a very, <laughs> I had like, I knew how to handle clients. I knew how to present front facing, you know, client facing schedules, client facing budgets. I knew how to handle clients, which a lot of Mm. freelancers do not know how to do. And especially the young ones. I feel like there's a lot of like trepidation about pushing back. Um, They don't know how to handle difficult clients. They, you know, and it's it's sad to see them get burned so bad. A lot of the time they come out of a year of freelancing and they're totally burnt out. Or, and that gives them this sort of like snarling personality where they're like, I, I will not deviate from a scope at all. There's no interpretation. There's no time for in, in 
improv. We're going to, and the second the plan changes, they have no tolerance and they're completely like stressed out. That's how I used to be as a producer a little bit, <laughs> but calming, cooling down. And I feel, and, but learning these kind of, kind of getting, it's like getting it out of your system. Like I said, doing all those junior mistakes. And then now as a freelancer, I'm able to like, I think handle all these situations a lot better. I, I have a producer mindset, so I know mm -hmm. how to kind of get ahead of issues sometimes that maybe artists, like I, I my boyfriend's a freelancer or not, or was a freelance artist at a time. And, you know, I, even that I, I kind of ghost produced it, ghost produced him a bit a few times. <laughs> I'd be like, Nick, look at this email. Look at that. They're going to ask this next. They're going to, he's like, no, they're not. I was like, you don't think this note is coming? Watch what three, two, one. Oh, boom. Look, they just asked for extra. What did I tell you? And yeah. because he gave it, gave him the first thing. Now they're going to, and he's like, God, oh, you're right. You know, like it's, a, it's interesting. So the skills absolutely play. And I would mm -hmm. love to see, um, artists pay more attention to the business side because don't let yourself get burned. Don't leave money mm -hmm. on the table. But at the same time, clients hate to hear no and they will remember, they won't remember the 10 yeses that you gave them. They'll remember mm -hmm. the one no that you gave them. So you have to know how to say no, no in a, the nicest way uh, mm -hmm. to say, yeah, of course, everything's possible, baby. Do you have the time and the budget? That's all I come back. I say, yeah, absolutely. We can do that. Here's the time and the cost for that. And 99% of the time the ask goes away because, yeah. oh, look at that. You don't have the time and the money. Oh, okay. It wasn't as important a note as you made it out to be. That's what I thought. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's, you know, but knowing <laughs> those tricks only came from years, years of watching people better than I do it and know, know how, what to do and what to say in those situations. Do you think that, um, because you, you talked about working at, uh, Mars and at Tendril and learning so much while you were there. Do you think that there's sort of this almost like a, um, an apprenticeship aspect to the first few years of mm -hmm. work? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very thankful for the education that I got, but, mm -hmm. but I almost felt like if it, if it was just the education, it would never have been enough. I needed that. You know, do you, do you feel that there was, there was like a, a trial by fire that was happening for you? Oh or? God, yes. A hundred percent. Every, every job was a trial by fire. Sink or swim, baby. That was what it was. So, you know, VFX was one thing and then you prove to yourself, oh, look, I can do this. And then you move on to the next big thing. And yeah, it was, it was a lot. There were, there were fabulous people in this industry to learn from some really excellent, excellent talent, um, administrative as well as creative. And mm -hmm. it was a pleasure being in proximity with those people. I like can't sing their praises enough because they taught me the, uh, it's like school. I went to school. I learned, I read the books, but then when you go to the studio floor, that's when you're really putting your, uh, you know, you're, that's mm -hmm. where you're learning, you're testing your metal, basically, you're learning, you're applying what you learned. And that is a more real lesson than anything you can learn in school where the stakes are very low. You think they're high, but they're really low. It's the same way, you know, when you're a child, when you think the stakes are so high in grade five, and then of course you get to university or high school, you look back, like, of course, it's like little, little kid stuff. There was no stakes. It was imaginary. But you have to believe it in order to progress. And mm -hmm. so it's the same. It's the same. It's the older you get, you look back and you're like, oh yeah, school seemed big at the time. But of course the reality was it wasn't as important as the real world experience, which um, builds off, you know, the education. Mm -hmm. Hopefully if you, you know, if it progressed as it should. Um, 
as you, you know, it's meant to that you go to school and then you enter the field that you were trying to get into that you were educated in. And uh, eventually, yeah, like without without those people in those studios, I see in Tendril and all, uh, you know, working at other free studios here and there for as a freelancer, I don't think I would be as good as I am today. Not that I'm great, whatever. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's like without the, they're, they're all my shoulders whispering in my ear being like, you know, think about this, think about that. Yeah, you know, that's think a about good the lighting, image. think about the texturing. Yeah. Did you do that? I remember, you know, asking uh, my friend Tori Miles, who is one of the most talented uh, matte painters and CG soups possibly in Toronto, maybe North America. I think she's one of the best. Uh, shout out Tori Miles. And uh, she she working right now at Mr. X, I believe. Um, and we talk about art all the time, all the time and what makes just like abstract. But we pull all the way out, like really abstract, what makes good art and what makes good this and that. And I remember I showed her an early render I had done and she was so kind and she was like, Emily, this is really good, but think about the way the light is hitting the seashell. Wouldn't the bumps, it, it just took her saying it before I was like, oh, of course I fucked up the normal map. That's why it's not doing blah, 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 blah. And it, I just needed somebody to tell, like as soon as mm -hmm. somebody said it, it clicked. And that I think is uh, something that's gonna be, it's sad to not have that in Corona time, the times of mm -hmm. COVID where studios are now operating. Yeah separate to not be able to turn to your desk mate and be like what am I missing here why does it suck and then it'd be like well did you try oh my god you little genius you got it you know it's just like bouncing ideas rapidly oh yeah off other artists in in it, it incubates you faster it really it really makes you go fast if you want to learn hard and fast how to be a good artist try to score a production job because you will be immersed in it and you won't have any choice but to get better at what mm -hmm. you're trying to get better at do you think you're still learning today? Like, is it like a lifelong oh, thing? For you? Never, yeah, and never stop. Always keep learning. Yeah. Somebody said, I forget who famous person said this, but it's very pertinent. Where they said, the the second you think you have nothing more to learn, that's when your art dies. Uh, I really, really believe in that. You you keep pushing every day. I want to learn more different three D softwares. Everybody wants to learn Unity. <laughs> Everyone says that, but I really do want to learn Unreal Engine and Unity and uh, Houdini now is becoming less restrictive because before it was all code-based and now mm -hmm. I think they're moving towards making it more user-friendly somewhat with some sliders, some neat nifty little sliders there for dum-dums like me to play with. I, uh, I'm in the same boat. I can't do the math in old old school. CDs. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's always, always things worth learning that are mm -hmm. going to enhance your abilities and make your techniques catch up with your cool ideas. Cause when you have that synergy, that marriage of a great idea and it's executed really, really well with excellent technique, that's like, that's when you, the gates of heaven open, you've hit, you've hit Nirvana. You're like, Oh yes. Perfect. Perfect score. <laughs> where, where do you think, um, so, so, you know, we've talked about your past, we've talked about your present, but where do you think that, uh, that you know, the 3D fashion illustration is going to take that industry. Like, like I said, it, it seems like it's still something that is just starting to come into its own. 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. There's a lot of ways to answer that. So I think uh, COVID sort of accelerated 3D inside the fashion industry uh, a lot. What, what should have taken maybe 10 years to get to has now like happened mm. in the last two years. So it's very exciting. Like before, I guess I was operating on the fringes of fashion niche. It's like nobody was talking about 3D and then COVID hit and suddenly I was busy. And every 3D artist I knew that was in fashion, it was a small pond. So you, it's easy to know a lot of them. Suddenly they were all busy too. And so I see it as sort of evolving in a couple of ways, obviously in the rap, in the vein of rapid prototyping and actual garment manufacturing production, obviously there's gonna be use to for 3D integrating into the pipeline to hopefully reduce waste. I can't speak too much about that as a person mm. that is not involved at all in fashion design or garment production. It's not my bag. Um, but looking at it aside, let's say like a 3D artist and with a lot of commercial clients in fashion and sort of doing like fashion, digital fashion animations, um, a lot of people are seeing the value in uh, having their having their garments in 3D format because of all these platforms that are opening up. Right. Uh, so for example, like the, like um, NFTs and the uh, marketplaces that will sell it and accept NFTs. So on the blockchain. So like right now everybody kind of knows, or I think most people in the digital world, art world know the big sites that are selling NFTs. It's like Foundation, OpenSea, Rarible, Super Rare, Mark Maker's Place, Known Origin, yada, yada, yada. Versus like, and what I think we're gonna see is digital fashion marketplaces open up. So there's places like uh, the Dematerialized is sort of a fashion, digital fashion collective and Luxo and blockchain, like different, I don't know too many of them. I think they're only just now starting to boot up. So only have like the whispers mm -hmm. of them, but basically those like those sites where it's gonna be a fashion marketplace where you're gonna own 3D garments. So that's one application. Another serious, more tangible application I think is in games, people's 3D avatars, they wanna right. dress them up in the Gucci baby. I get it, you know, like why not? VR is also coming into play. Like all these spaces where virtual identities step in fashion inevitably mm -hmm. follows mm -hmm. because it's part of identity and so having your garment modeled in 3d wow like look at that you can see someone playing your game in the latest like product that's pretty cool mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um louis vuitton teamed up with uh, overwatch and they had one of the overwatch characters as part of their sales campaign. And that's another thing, that's kind of where my bread and butter comes into play, making 3D garments for uh, marketing materials and market and promotional materials. So making gorgeous, fantastical uh, digital illustrations that to photograph would be either incredibly expensive, if not impossible. Um, and like, let's put this dress on the moon. Let's put this dress uh, right. underwater because we can. Let's see, you know, and you can do that. You can do photo, you know, photo kit bash it or whatever, Photoshop it in. Yeah, but I can, I can make it in 3D and so we can animate, you know, it allows more freedom than a 2D composited image um, could do. So a lot of the time it's really fun to explain to the client like, they're like, can we do this? Can we do that? I'm like, we can do anything. It's whatever you want. Let's make it so beautiful and, and joyful and like fantastic that, you know, people will stop and say, wow. And that's like, uh, that's what, again, just one of the applications of 3D mm -hmm. fashion. Um, so there's like a ton, I'm sure I'm missing more, but I'll cap it at three. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, um, I mean, 
I think we talked about this before, but I've, I've done a lot of work in, in VR. And, and one of the things uh, that, you know, in the early days, people kept asking, was like, how are we going to make this profitable? And, and, you know, my answer was always, well, hats, which was just a reductionist way of saying fashion, right? We, yeah, we... yeah, filters, think of that's a great mm-hmm. idea. Oh my God, there you go. I missed a big one. AR, fil- shopping, mm-hmm. fil- uh, online mm-hmm. shopping is driving 3D fashion because people want, one of my biggest clients, contracts to date was recreating a whole brands with a team of artists a whole their whole collection for a season in 3d so that they could put it up on their website and the user could then spin it around zoom in try it it on ar filter style it was Mm -hmm. it's like right Mm -hmm. there that's like hiring a that's industry Mm -hmm. baby it's hiring a ton of people to do that type of work Mm -hmm. and so and it's just like when we think about like right now people their uh, their online avatars, like their Facebook profile or their or some kind of profile image, you know, their Instagram feed. So they're they're curating that. They're making sure that they look like the best themselves that they can be, because that's mm-hmm. the image they want to portray to the world. When we start getting into, you know, like you talked about uh, Fortnite and games and the customizations, and and you know, there's an industry there we've seen over the last, you know, five years people have constantly been writing and talking about how uh, cosmetics and vanity items are essentially driving a, a large portion of the games industry and i said well what what happens when those two things collide when we get that you know uh, ready player one version of you know the vr social network where your avatar isn't just a representation of you it is you it is how you move and walk around that world that's where i'm like any kind of digital, um, you know, fashion or, or you, yeah. Or, oh. Do you think, yeah. Do you, it's like honestly believe that if you could have your avatar, it's exactly as you described. So it's like, like ready player one style where you put on the headset and you enter cyberspace would be naked. Are you crazy? Like yeah. everybody's going to want fashion clothes. It's probably, I guess it's part of the identity. We're just, you know, a bunch of an- naked animals. Like you think nudity is going to suddenly become <laughs> the <laughs> new, the new style in VR? Are you crazy? No way. Or like a generic <laughs> jumpsuit? No, it's, yeah, no, it's that's not all individual. And, and we'll be able to do things that we can't do in the real world. Right. So all of a sudden yeah. your, your avatar will have I don't know. Wings or something. Yeah, or one bat wing and one one angel wing. Oh, God, if I see that, I'll know that's a fourteen year old. Uh, we did it, boy. I'll be like, oh, you're a teenager. How could you tell? Uh, tell. It's something about the wings, the mismatched wings. I, I personally, if we ever get to that point in reality, if I'm still alive when we've uh, achieved the uh, Ready Player One reality, is like I would honestly be rid of this wretched human carcass and become a gaseous blob in a second. I'd be like, why would I ever be a mortal human when I could be a walking tree? Are you kidding me? I'm gonna be an ant, goodbye. Like with a flower crown, maybe I have four wings, a bunch of eyes. Wait a minute, did I just describe a biblically accurate angel? Boom, that's what I am. (laughs) bunch of halos circling 20 wings and my mouth is fire like yeah that i mean that's what i hope that eventually we can sh- even be shed human yeah oh yeah identity just shave it off and maybe you know and now you can become a fairy become an alien become some organic 
like I, for me, it's a gaseous mm-hmm. blob. Mm-hmm. That's what I would like to be. And what does fashion look like for a gaseous this is blob? blob? That's true. Now we're talking. Now that's <laughs> where I want to. That's where I, I want to live long enough to see that. And my answer is, it's it's a Nike raincoat that's see through. No, I'm joking. Oh, <laughs> I kind of like a, the idea of a Nike raincoat around just this gaseous blob. I made that image, around. by the way. <laughs> I made that illustrate digital illustration. I'll send it to you. Okay, <laughs> you that know? Is yeah, that's what. I mean. But I, that's why I love digital fashion. I like dress up. I you know did something for this these great guys called Rumfords. They do a digital fashion um, newsletter, uh, and I dressed up a big plant. I made a b- bunch of flowers and I put it in a sweet outfit. And I was like, "This is the future, baby!" Like plants wearing clothes, dogs wear anthropomorphic. <laughs> furries wearing clothes trees wearing clothes everything gaseous fish people wearing clothes like that's to me so interesting that's what I do with my art it's like fantastic fashion fantastical fashion is like what I always dying to do I'm like waiting for the big client score where they're just like we have a a ton of alien avatars what does that fashion look like and it'd be like yeah let's find (laughs) out do something weird make it weird yeah so th- there's one more subject that I wanted to bring up, and uh, it's something that's very timely. You you have some crypto art. Oh yes, I do. Yes, NFTs. Yeah, and and I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about about NFTs and crypto art and and your thoughts on those. Um, I was taking a look at at the pieces you had up on um, what is it. Uh, Known origin. Known origin. That's it. And like the season of the fox, and they they, yeah. they feel very, like the, again, there there's we we look at the three different worlds of VFX and CG, CG art and crypto art, and then fashion. And and I, I feel like your work really sort of bridges all of that. Uh, I really like these pieces. But tell me a little bit about about um, a you know was this just another one of your sort of extensions of I illustrate for fun and now I'm going to do these these pieces of art for fun and and why crypto art why nfts yeah okay that's a good question and um I've dedicated a lot of brain space to nfts as I think is true to say for any digital artist in the last couple months Mm -hmm. um this has been something that's just been constantly talked about in all of our social media feeds it started you know for me in late December early January a couple of the artists that I follow on Instagram uh, started posting about this stuff and and it piqued my interest and I did some research and I won't bother rehashing what NFTs are here I assume listeners know at this point has a rough idea of what they Mm are and uh, I think what happened to me and I'll say my story in hopes that maybe it'll help someone else out there that's maybe feeling the right way the same way because I don't have I can only tell you what I feel and these are just opinions mm-hmm. and it's it's been up and down and it's changed actually a lot in the last couple of weeks even um because at first I was so happy about NFTs as a concept it sounded like a miracle didn't it yep. we, I was like oh my God, this is the savior of digital art. This is the advent we've yep. been waiting for. At last, I can participate in uh, the art market in a very meaningful way, the same as if I were a fine artist. And that has never happened before. And wow, I can start making money off of this huge backlog I have of my personal um, CG projects. And 
I kind of saw dollar signs in my eyes. I got, I think, a little like of the gold rush, you know, you kind of get a little bit by the greed bug. Not that even that it's greed. It's just like, here's a chance I could be making good money. It's just like good yep. sense. You know, you're, you're a foolish businessman to not have your ears open for new opportunities that come your way. And this seems like a really golden opportunity. And um, I think I was influenced again by these artists I was following. They have huge followings already on social media platforms mm -hmm. and they were posting uh, their sort of winning bids for their work on their social media. And it, fueled i think a gold rush like a gold rush to nft and i am just as guilty as being influenced by those numbers seeing those numbers for digital art for the first time i was like oh my god i gotta get in on this i like i said be a fool not to even try mm -hmm. so uh that was like my original motivators like here's another avenue of income i can tap into and it'll help me maybe be less reliant on client work, which means you can focus more time and energy in personal work, which is obviously more rewarding. And in my opinion, better, always better because I'm not, it's not a product I'm trying to sell. It's, I'm not answering to someone else other than me. I'm answering, it's, it's art for art's sake, right? And mm -hmm. so quality, I think always goes up. And I got some really good advice at the very beginning um, before I did any crypto art. Uh, somebody's like, you know, treat it, treat it like your bet the best of your best. Treat it like a real art gallery. So would you put your sketches or your doodles up on the wall if a gallery gave you a show? Or would you not try to do something more special, more intense that really showcases your skill set? And I really liked that advice. And I I tried to carry it through with my pieces. Like I'm not putting up some daily render shit. I'm not gonna put up something that I spent a day on, honest, even if it's really good. I I the crypto art, I treat like my a fine art practice. It should be the best of the best. This is the best this piece can be that I made it. Um, I'm happy exactly with how it turned out. I sat with it for a long, you know, I see a lot of uh, NFT art that goes live on these sites. It's just like tutorials or dailies or just like experimental re experiments in simulation or whatever that you happen to render. And I don't agree with that. I, I mean, somebody out there wants it and if, God love you, if someone buys it, go for it. Well, absolutely. But my personal opinion is I don't want to sell that kind of stuff and I'm not going to buy it either. If it's just looks like tests that you ran out of your computer for that day. Um, and it's up to you how you want to run your digital practice. But I found if I kind of treated crypto art this way, so make it more special, it gives it more value, it makes it more meaningful. Mm -hmm. And it means the person who's collecting it, there's something to it. There's a story behind it. You can look at it. There's there's something to dive, dive into and sink your teeth into. And I think that gives it more value. And I went through like thinking, oh, I was like, you know, evangelicals when you first become converted, how you're like so gung-ho about it. And you're like, you're like forefront of the cult. You're like, yeah, this is it. And so I was like shouting from the rooftops, NFTs, crypto art, NFTs are the best, crypto art, blah, blah, blah. And then the bubble pops and like uh, suddenly my whole social media feed, I'm sure again, this is true for mm -hmm. a lot of people, where it's utterly, utterly saturated yeah. with crypto art, NFTs. It was too much. It was overwhelming. And um, a lot of the art that get posted as NFTs and cryptos, in my opinion, from really good artists, it seemed to actually go downhill. I found that the art was going downhill. I wasn't liking what mm -hmm. the, some of these artists mm -hmm. that I'd liked 
for years and I had liked all their stuff before suddenly it seemed like they were just pumping out work just to slap it on these websites because they had the audience the big enough audience that they someone would buy it and it felt rushed and suddenly the quality was going down and everyone was talking about it and I'm like a natural kind of contrarian where if something becomes too popular and everybody loves it I naturally start to hate it and start to find reasons not to participate in it anymore so I went from like its biggest profit its biggest acolyte to sort of going to be like man nfts are stupid fuck this <laughs> even though I had nft up even though I was such a hypocrite I was selling season of the fox had already come out by the time I became disillusioned oh wow with nfts but i was like i'm not taking it down though because it cost me money to mint mm -hmm. it so mm -hmm. it's like i'm not taking it down and uh, let me just say this is like to show how like it went from sort of on the fringe to becoming like the focal point of global news for the last couple of months i would mm -hmm. say was like when i minted season of the fox it cost me i waited until it was later at night so the pr gas prices were down so it cost me like 60 bucks i was like that's not bad that's not bad i had to wait almost two months before I could mint my next NFT, even though it was ready for weeks, because the gas prices were outrageous and it would have cost me hundreds of dollars to mint a multi-edition. Yep. Yep. And I was like, no, it's not worth it. No, keep, just wait, just wait. And I had to wait until sort of like the market had cooled, the heat was off mm -hmm. of it before. And even then I ended up paying about a hundred dollars just mm -hmm. to mint. Um, yeah. Uh, we had Dre LeBray, he's a creative futurist, and we had a similar discussion uh, in a previous episode. And one of the things that he mentioned was there used to be a game called Crypto Kitties, which was a uh, which, which oh, was fueled yeah. by NFTs. But he was yeah. saying like to mint a, a, an NFT for that game was pennies, you know? And, yeah, it, de and, it, it depends. I think. Yeah, and now it's like you know seventy bucks for yeah. Easily, it depends. Right? I I don't want to out myself as an ignoramus by describing how smart contracts and blockchain work. <laughs> yeah, I, only, I don't know either. I only know by the skin of my teeth, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I only know enough that I understand it, but to even to say it out loud would probably reveal that I don't really yeah. understand it. The, the, the internet understand. is rolling up sleeves right now, getting ready yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. knock us <gasps> down. No, yeah. no, no, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm dumb. Uh, so it's yeah. It's like how uh, it just it just got more expensive, obviously, because yeah. the mining the miners were like in higher demand, so they could set the prices mm -hmm. whatever they want. And then sort of the third evolution of my thought on this after it was also like I, I also rejected NFT not just because it was incredibly popular but it had sort of come to light that uh it was incredibly bad for the environment mm -hmm. and this mm -hmm. has been true of crypto cryptocurrencies well before nfts everybody in crypto which of course has been around since like at least 10 years at this point um bitcoin and sort of talking about cryptocurrencies has been around way longer than nfts mm -hmm. or art or crypto art let's say um like they all knew that, that it was really bad for the environment. And they had all sort of been saying, oh, Ethereum 2.0, it's coming, it's coming. Yeah, it's been five years and it's not here yet. So artists mm -hmm. are very sensitive. I think, you know, the arts community is very sensitive to these sort of social justice issues, including the environment. And so when it became, came to light how really awful crypto art can be for the environment, a lot of uh, artists broke away, me included, saying, well, hold on, I want to get rich, but not at any cost, not mm -hmm. at the cost of, really screwing up the environment that doesn't mm -hmm. seem fair or right and I think what ended up happening is sort of like group I don't want to talk for everybody but from the observer point of view that I sort of perched on the sidelines of Instagram and watching sort of stuff unfold was that 
you had these this group of artists uh, that were incredibly successful at crypto art and it was changing their art practice again suddenly they didn't have to rely on client commercial work they were turning into more like fine artists where they have a a following and they're making art basically for people who are already fans of their art and this is so crazy liberating and it wasn't just like pennies they're making really good money this is money you can you can support this could create generational wealth we're talking mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. serious wealth i can pass down to my kid that's nothing to you sniff your nose at that's mm -hmm. something i would jump on that opportunity yeah. as well and then you had artists like me that were sort of in the crypto scene we're not making any money from it. We're not, we're not quitting mm -hmm. our day jobs. We got to keep going here. It's just like one potential avenue of mm -hmm. income. And I think a lot of people saw this, that um, the artists that were making really good money were so feverently defending crypto art, including ignoring the bad stuff about the environment. And it's like, guys, I can't take what you're saying for real because you obviously have skin in the game. You mm -hmm. obviously have something yep. to lose. And then the other side of people, it's like, well, easy for you guys to say, because you're not making any money off of it. And it's very true. I probably, if I was making that kind of scratch, if I was making 500,000 USD off a couple of pieces, that suddenly doesn't allow, I don't have to work now for like two years on any commercial where I can invest that, blah, blah, blah. A, I would yeah. absolutely probably be defending NFTs today. Yeah. I'd probably be out there with a sword and be like, how dare you say this bad stuff, blah, blah, blah. The last thing I was going to say is the the final iteration of my thoughts that I've sort of found myself landing in is that we all have a right to pay the bills. And that I, what changed my mind kind of as, again, I was firmly in that camp that NFTs are crap, bad, poo. And it's like bad art. It's making bad art. And I don't, it's bad for the environment, blah, blah, blah. And all, all these, it was probably jealousy, maybe even a little bit. Like, look at these famous people. Once again, he's leveraging their already in flame in place to become even more famous while the rest of us peons here toil in the trenches unrecognized. Um, but what happened was I read a post from someone and she wasn't a particularly well-known artist. She's just like an artist. I personally really like her work and her style. And she was like, you know, I've been receiving a lot of criticism for selling NFTs and crypto art, but you don't know my financial situation. It's been a really bad year for me. I had, you know, unexpected medical expenses has really dipped into my save my life savings. And suddenly uh, I had an opportunity to sell crypto art in this show and it, it leveraged a lot of money for me, made a lot of capital available for me. So it's really rude of you all, This she was just talking in a story sort of general mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the audience of, to say, you know, shame on you, shame on you for selling crypto art. But it's like, excuse me, are you, do you go up to the truck driver that's and say, shame on you for, for hauling fruit, all this, causing, spitting all those fumes into yeah. the environment, shame on you. It's like, everybody has to eat. Everybody has to pay the bills. You don't know someone's life let them be. If they can make money doing this, let them do that. I mm -hmm. actually have no problem. If you can make your money, however you make, as long as you're not hurting anyone or it's not like, you know, illegal or whatever, it's like, obviously you can all think of extreme examples where making money at the, you know, at the, on, on the back. Harming people, someone else. Yeah. Harming is obviously not the example I'm talking about, but if yeah. you're, no, you're making your money, and you're a but you know working at the butcher factory or the meat processing factory. It's yeah, it's not like helping the environment, but damn it, this person has to feed their family. Mm -hmm. This person has built, and that's valid. That that need is valid. And so that kind of like kind of put it in perspective for me a little bit. And now I'm like, you know what? Don't feel so 
negative or hard on yourself that you were selling NFTs, Emily, or crypto art, it's it's not hypocritical. It's like you need money. It's it's an avenue of of income that you again you'd be foolish to sniff at, sniff mm-hmm. you know, say poo poo to, mm-hmm. and so you know, let people live their lives, I guess is the final word I have on it. And hopefully, like all things, hopefully in industry and outcry from artists will drive change mm-hmm. for the better. Is it going to happen fast? I don't have the answers to that. But no. I'd, love, I'd love to see more platforms that make it their goal to offset the carbon footprint that minting and cryptocurrencies cause you know maybe the for every you know if you take the commission fee from the sale and put it towards green initiatives that right. would be that would have my interest like that i would suddenly be so interested in selling on your platform and i know these platforms are looking to do that which is good and that's that's the artists all do they're doing that's they're doing they're saying we're not going to participate you know, you're missing out on a huge part of the market. They're saying we're not going to participate because this is so bad for the environment. Yeah. Okay, well, that drives change. Yeah. That makes it. It's. It feels like a lot of it is just. It isn't really that. It's related to the technology of cryptocurrency, but I think it's equally related to just straight up capitalism, right? Yeah. You know, course. you build you build a system for people to make money. They will always, or we will always, as a collective, push it to its to its extreme to make as much money as quickly as possible. We will and, always import the systems that we're used to yeah. into the new. Yeah. Why? It's the same thing. The idea that what we enter the virtual world and we'd all decide to be naked. No, of course not. No. We'd always bring our yeah. clothes with us. Same. Yeah. Say, oh, we invented a new marketplace. Cool. Let's make it yeah. capitalist. And we will charge for that. And you'll have to get a Facebook account. And exactly, you know, like, yeah. that's yeah, what yeah. we know. And yeah. so we recreate what we but know. It's and yeah. the thing that. I think about crypto art that I also found that a couple of articles that I was reading. And again, this is I'm this is me as a as an ignoramus reading into this stuff. But um, uh, there are a, a lot of the sites are actually making their money off of people minting the yeah. NFTs and not so much about off the auctions themselves. It's more about mm-hmm. getting people giving them the hope that they're going to sell stuff so that they'll spend a hundred bucks per piece of art. Right, and then incentivizing them to 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 mint more than one piece so that you can make that money, and then the other side of it was that there are some less scrupulous um, sites where they're selling artwork that they don't even own. Oh yeah, that and that's happen. like, hmm, <laughs> th- that's and then what happens to the person who who buys an NFT for something that technically. Yeah, and that that comes down, but that's like every that's any industry. Oh, right? of course. How do you know yeah. that Monet hanging in your salon is really the real thing? Well, I bought it from so and so, or you know, like mm-hmm. it's it's the same. You can sell. You can. There's fraudulent art dealers and fraudulent mm-hmm. artists that spend their whole career copying the great masters to sell mm-hmm. on the black market as fake real masterworks. So it's the same, right? In the digital world, we've just replicated that system of fraudulence over there. Mm-hmm. Now, so if you're a, a co- collector of crypto art, same as if you were a collector of fine art, the onus that is on you to make sure where you're buying it from has right. done their due diligence to verify your identity. Because when I was um, accepted on known origin, which does have an application process, that process, 90% of it was, can we verify you are who you say you are? Uh. And you are the artist that claims copyright to these works. And when you 
so you have to like, yeah, you have to submit basically identity, basically a proof of identity, mm. proof that I own these accounts and I can change them and I update them. See, I, and then also uh, proof that I'm the copyright holder of these images. And when you mint a uh, piece, I've only minted on known origin, so I can only speak to this experience. It says, I acknowledge I hold the copyright to this image and that known origin will not be held liable or whatever, blah, 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 not be held uh, for damages should it turn out that I'm a fraudster and I don't own the copyright of this image. And then there's damages because then the crypto artist who maybe even bought it and then sold it on the secondary market loses value, et cetera, et cetera. It mm -hmm. has a huge knock on effect and it really, really hurts the uh, marketplace itself as well as the website to figure out, oh crud, we authenticated someone that was selling something that they didn't own the copyrights to. That's a big deal. That's a big problem. So it's, it's like, uh, there's lots of incentive for the site to do its due diligence, but you as a collector also have to do your due diligence. Look up that artist. Do they mention on their social media sites, oh, I'm selling this such and such piece um, on foundation. And, you know, if they've, if they've talked about it prior and you find it, then the chances are that is correct. And that is the piece. But if, you know, you find them on this weirdo site that they've never talked yeah. about on <laughs> any of their social media accounts, you know, you should, Go be wary. Going with a pinch yeah. of salt. Is this really who they say they are? Who they claim to be? Yeah, it's like a, a weird new form of identity theft. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's 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 creativity the same, theft. It's new systems, same as meet the new system. It's the same as the, the old. old yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like uh, this person doesn't really own this Mona Lisa. We all know the Mona Lisa is in the Louvre. If you bought that Mona Lisa from the corner, then you should have known better. No one, <laughs> yeah. You're not going to get your the cops aren't going to help you. You should have known that. Well, listen, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I, re I really enjoyed uh, talking to you and having you as a guest on our show. Thank you uh, so much for having me, Stefan. Thank you so much for listening to my oh. outrageous crypto art rant where I got to just <laughs> unload all my feels, all my opinions and feelings about crypto art that I've been dying to say. And my boyfriend's had enough. He's like, I'm not talking about <laughs> I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know, because we talked about it constantly oh, for yeah. weeks and weeks. Yeah. And when it was the fucking focus mm -hmm. of everyone's social media feed, it was um, it was so obnoxious. I couldn't stomach it anymore. Now yeah. it's calmed down a little bit. I think I'm going to make a prediction for the future. Here's oh, the last perfect. word on it. Uh, I think what's going to happen is once the market cools down and the spotlight's off of it a little bit, um, it's basically going to find its level uh, in a bunch mm -hmm. of niche markets, crypto kitties, digital fashion, crypto socks I've seen, you know, like everybody's just going to go off and find their cool niche little market that they're like, oh yeah, I, I collect crypto art. I collect digital socks. Like that's my niche thing that yeah. I go into, or I'm a collector of this particular artist. So mm -hmm. it'll find its level. And I think what'll end up happening is we'll have, we'll see a, we'll see a split into a ton of different really niche markets. Yeah. Market. I kind of feel like the, what we were talking about earlier with like fashion and VR and fashion and, and you, and your uh, virtual avatar, that's something where, where, where uh, crypto could be really interesting where you could actually yeah. own a, a unique piece that you can then show off on your, oh. on your avatar yeah and yeah like absolutely you'd have to like that's part of the fashion of course is showing off mm -hmm. is clout exactly. clout and exclusivity and look what i have that you don't have that's what makes fashion evil yeah. and fun <laughs> evil and fun that's yeah. what our podcast is all about <laughs> all right emily well thanks again and uh and i hope you have a great day and uh, and we hope to have you back again sometime in the future 
Anytime, Stefan. Enjoy the rest of your Friday. And This episode of Can't Sell This was produced in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. All creative content in this episode is copyright Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Questions or comments can be emailed to admin at can'tsellthispodcast.com. Music for the podcast is provided by Not Of. Find Not Of at notof.bandcamp.com. Opening and closing voiceover provided by jeffwright.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, a like in whatever platform you use goes a long way to helping the podcast get noticed. Thanks for listening and keep creating. See you.